Listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Greg Cregan, a ceramic potter. This episode is very much grounded and down to earth. Of course, you might like to explore the links in the show notes for visual reference as we explore ceramics, clay, and creating decorative ceramics in a potter's studio. Greg reflects on his early interest in art and drawing which eventually led him to explore working with clay and the potter's wheel. We explore the process of creating decorative clay pots and other objects from selecting a lump of clay and shaping it on a potter's wheel, then preparing it for firing. Greg emphasizes the nuance and significance of touch and feel in relation to balancing and shaping the spinning clay. Greg offers insights into the ancient and specialist technique of sagar firing, where various materials as diverse as metal wire, salt, wood, oxides and seaweed are kept close to the surface of the pots as they are fired in a kiln. When heated at a very high temperature, the essence of the materials in the form of smoke and fumes work their alchemical magic to transform the surface of the clay and create unique and compelling shapes, patterns and textures. Greg offers personal insights into his art making process, including the affect of shaping, releasing, then sharing the profound beauty hidden within the clay. Here's my conversation with Greg Cregan. So good to see you again, Greg. Great to see you again, Mark. So we're all this. We're in. Like, what do you call this? Your workshop. This is yeah, the workshop studio. studio. Yeah, studio workshop. It's just yeah. It's just a place where, which is great. Well, I've got my other workshop, which is on that other side behind that partition there, and that's where, that's where anything kind of wood, metal, all that works because you don't want to get the wood shavings or metal filings mixing up with your clay. You've got to kind of separate the two. So because that will, um, that will have an effect on the clay. Iron in your clay, iron filings or, or you know, anything in your clay will show up uh, you know, when you fire it. Sawdust will also leave holes in your work. If you, if, you know, I burnish my work a lot smooth it a lot so the, if you have sawdust or, or any kind of imperfection that will burn out at 1100 degrees centigrade which is what I generally fire to it will leave a hole in the work and sometimes it can blow the work up okay well, <laughs> well we look forward to finding out a little bit more about that very shortly but how did you get started or you know were you always working in clay when you were younger how did it all begin well i really i used to draw a lot when i was a kid you know just draw on paper that was fun you know uh and i just 
copy stuff out of out of books, you know, or picture books or something like that. With pencils or yeah, pencil, charcoal. yeah, pencil, always pencil. Yeah. And I was lucky enough when my grandfather died. My grandmother, we built a granny flat up the back of our block where my grandmother moved in because she didn't handle band by herself. And so she moved into the back part. And she was an amazing woman, amazing woman. And she used to paint, loved painting. She loved painting. My brother actually, he got lessons when he was younger because he was much better. He was great at, he's a great painter but he never pursued it, which is a real issue. It's a bit of a problem in a lot of ways that he, he should have because he was absolutely fantastic. You know? And what happened is, I think because of my grandmother, I used to see her load up her stuff and take off you know, the old shopping trolley on wheels. And she'd walk, gosh, she'd be walking four, four Ks, five Ks up to top right to where they had the, the art school. And then she was well into, God, 70s by this stage, you know. And so really into it then. And she was, well, she loved it, you know. And, you know, she did a reasonable kind of, a, um, a reasonable kind of painter, you know. She did stuff and it was more her, you know, her ability just to enjoy herself and the social side. You know, all that kind of thing. So you saw all of that when you oh, were Oh, yeah. Up. Well, she used to, you know, I'd go up with, you know, she was up the back of the block. So you go up there and, you you know, you sit and talk to her and she'd be painting while you just... What sort of things did she oh, talk landscapes, about? landscapes. Landscapes and portraiture. Now, what, what sort of things did she talk about when she oh, was painting? Oh, you talk about anything, you know. Oh, look, you know, she, you'd talk about her growing up, you know, stories of family. You know, she grew up in Kalgoorlie. One of about, God, I don't know how many bloody children. There was lots of them. <laughs> there was heaps of them. Yeah, and she'd just tell the stories, you know, like, you know, it was about living in Kalgoorlie and, and, you know, gosh, I don't know. Well, you know, she was 80. It must have been 1900, you know, around the 1900s. So what did that mean for you, kind of like, you Oh, know? well, she was a great break from the old lady because the old lady had five children, five children. Uh, and she was busy, you know, whereas, you know, you could always go and talk to someone else, you know, and, and she, and, and it is a classic thing about, you know, kids and their grandmothers, you know, you can, you know, a kid can tell their grandmother virtually anything, you know, and stuff they can't tell their mother, you know, or, you know, of course they've got to, you, once you get, oh, I don't know, maybe you get older, you get, some people don't, they get a bit more kind of, ah, uh, you know, set in their ways or, you know, disturbed by what they hear. Whereas, I mean, if you find some older people, you know, and they've seen and done it all, you know, so you're not going to shock them with whatever you're going to say, you know, they've seen and done most of it. And they got very sympathetic to it, you know. They've understood about how life itself has changed, you know, they've undergone such changes. You know, they've gone through wars and depressions and bloody God knows what else, you know. So you kind of go, oh, you know, so they have a lot of understanding, you know, and they've got a lot of patience. So you, you had your, you had your, um, your, your pencils. I want to get back 
on track with oh, your, yeah, yeah, yeah. you and your art making. You had your pencils and your, your paper. And, and, well, it was just a way of, it was also a way of me just turning off from life. It was, it was a way of, you, you concentrated so much and it just would take up hours, you know, and I, um, you know, in a house where there's a lot going on, you can actually be, you know, virtually by yourself because you're just, you're so intent on what you're doing, you know, uh, that other things just don't matter, you know. They tend to fade into a little bit of insignificance or just become background to what you're doing. So at what point, like, I guess you Well, were... it was interesting, okay, I can get to where you're going from yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> you can Is read that, my okay, tone. Where did, where did I go from there? Well, okay. I'm wondering when the clay starts to emerge, oh, well, you know? this was around now. Having watched me old, my grandmother paint, uh, and at one stage, this is, gosh, must have been in the early mid-twenties, about yeah, mid-twenties, I ended up, I was running a business, um, a fencing business, you know, just building fences, not with swords, yeah. And I used to have time in my hands at night, and I just started to paint. You know, and just enamels, house paint. <laughs> get little pots of house paint, you know, and, and, and paint, start painting that. And, and then that just went from there. I was just started to paint. And, and people were saying, well, you know, you can paint. You know, you can actually paint. Well, like you got the talent type thing. Yeah, an encouragement. And then people said, well, you know, you should learn, you know. So I thought, okay, you know, eventually I've gone... Oh, but this must have been another five years on. Eventually, I've kind of thought about it, and I've gone, I will, you know. I want to do something at night. I don't want to be just doing this all my life, and I'd like something to do else. So I took up, I went and enrolled at a uh, Metabank Art School in around about the 1980s. About the 80s, I, I signed up and... Had to, you had to undergo an interview and a bit of an aptitude test, but I got accepted, and that into uh, with uh, into the art school with um, a column design major, and that meant that they taught you. I had to go three nights a week uh, because I was working during the day. Had to go three nights a week and. I did that for about ooh, two, uh, two, nearly three years. And now it's in the third year. In the third year, they were going to give me sculpture. I'd already I'd been drawing for years. They very hot on drawing, so I was drawing for three years. Print making, uh, yes, you know, screen print, print making, uh, drawing, painting. I was shit at painting. <laughs> I found out I wasn't any good at painting. Uh, and then I, uh, in the third year, instead of doing sculpt, they were going to give me sculpture, there wasn't enough people to run the class. So they said, okay, we'll give you ceramics as applied design. I said, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. Well, that was it, you know. I did a year of... Well, I started ceramics, 
And then I've gone, oh, this is, you know, I've found my niche, you know. So then I would, uh, I just swapped. I just stopped the art and, and swapped straight over to ceramics, dropped all the rest and went, and then it was only one night a week, which is also good. It was, we had pressure on doing three nights a week. And, oh, and making pots was a lot of fun. You know, they made it fun too. You know, they were bloody good teachers. It was a good school. Uh, you what know, was that? What was it about their approach that made them good? <clears throat> they made you into a potter. They made you use clay and showed you different forms of clay, how to use it, uh, different ways of firing. Yeah, different ways of firing. You'd go into... You know, you'd explored Raku. Raku is pretty kind of romantic. I don't know what that means. Raku firing is when you actually, you fire up pots in a kiln, generally about a thousand degrees centigrade. That's when the glazes, it's a Japanese technique. The, and the glazes, it's low fired stuff. You know, all those kind of ancient tea bowls you see in China, they're all Raku, you know. Anyway. So the so what happens is they fire up to thousand degrees, but it's fired inside like a forty-four gallon drum, big water barrel. But that's been lined with this special fibre called fibrefrax, which is what they use in the space program to stop the thing from melting. Because you can have it at thousand degrees on the inside and it's about two inches thick and you can put your hand on the outside and it's just warm. It's an amazing product. And what you do is you can actually get your pots all stacked up, all on shelves and stuff, all glazed, and then you can lift this thing off. And then you're left with this, all these pots, and it's a thousand degrees centigrade, these things. They're all glowing red hot. You know? And then what you do is you pick them up with tongs, these long metal tongs, and you take those, and then you immerse that into sawdust. And you leave it for a couple of minutes in the sawdust so that the smoke reacts with the glazes and the clay and everything else. And especially if you've got a crackle glaze, which means it has fine cracks, then it gives you that kind of maybe white, but it's got all these black cracks through it. But they're not cracks, it's just the glaze. You know, anyway, and then you take it out and you put it in water. And then your water, water is immediately starting to boil because you've put this bloody hot pot in there. Yeah, and that's Raku. It's pretty, you know, and then pit firing. They did pit firing. So you, you sounded like you, you liked all of what you were exposed to in terms of ceramics. At Oh, yeah, there was a great school to learn. All the different techniques. And yeah, they really gave you a good, a really good grounding in a lot of different techniques, and which in some ways you don't get so much anymore. You know, oh, because, you know, there's a whole world of ceramics out there. You know, if, you know, stuff you can, you know, I'm what they'd call an alternate, alternate firer. I do alternate firing techniques. Uh, you know, that covers pit firing, Sega, Raku, oh, uh, all the kind of incidental stuff. It's not, most of it's not functional. You know, you can't use it, you can't really eat off it. You can't use it, you know, per se. Most of it is just to look at, you know. You, well, you can use Raku. And even now that there is techniques, there's technologies caught up, you can, I can, you, I can eat off a Sega-fired ware. There's a, a coating, 
you can put on it that makes it food safe. So you were, but when you learned all these techniques back then, it sounds like you hit the ground running with, you started to use it more and more and you did less fencing, I'm assuming. No, no, I kept oh, up the fencing, kept, kept up, up the fencing. <laughs> no, well, I had to, you got to keep the buck coming through the door. And I said, yeah, but that did become a really intensive kind of hobby, you know, because I had to, you know, I built my own kilns at home, you know, fired, you know, I used to make pots at home, you know, go to tech, make pots, go home, make more pots, fire them up, you know, as I said, built kilns, fired them up. When successful kilns, not in the initial, but, you know, you live and you learn. And, uh, and I, uh, I did that until... Uh, I did get to that point where I just had enough building fences, really. Uh, and I left Sydney, left Sydney, bought a place down uh, south of Batemans Bay um, and built a workshop. Bought a really, the worst house ever. It was just a run-down, it was a shack, a run-down shack. But it was what I could afford. So, and then I built... Of course, I was by myself. It didn't matter what I was living like. Um, and built another kiln. Um, this one was a successful one. Yeah, good, a nice successful kiln. All all brick, gas fired. You know, you could hear it. It sounded like a plane going off. By the time I was got to the top temperature, but then I was firing what they call stoneware, which is about thirteen hundred degrees centigrade. Uh, and I was making functional wear then glazing glazing stuff and functional wear because that's where the money was. But I was also making pit-fired stuff. So I had the practical and the aesthetic. You know, well, there's aesthetic with, you know, if you're going to make something to eat off, there's got to be a certain aesthetic to handling it and eating off it anyway. Um, but with the pit-fired, you can't really do anything with it except look at it. You know, so, but I used to use the tube and then I'd... You know, I built a workshop, built the kiln, and then you've got these pots and you're in a small country town. Uh, then I used to hit the road. I'd load the car up, you know, I'd work for a month, do all these firings, get the car full of pots, and then travel from Sydney to Melbourne and back again, selling pots as I went, you know, stopping at galleries, you know, and just offloading most of it on consignment. You know, you just leave it there, you come back in a couple of months and hopefully a check, or they'll pick up a check, you know, or you go through and resupply. You know, but it was good. I mean, that was a kind of good time for ceramics. It was a good time for ceramics, those. Uh, it fluctuates, comes in now to fashion ceramics, you know, especially, you know, you can buy and get ceramics from any shop, you know, stuff coming from China and Vietnam and stuff. And they're brilliant ceramics, for, you know, you're getting them for three bucks a plate, you know, and they're bloody lovely, you know, but uh, you can't make it for three bucks a plate in Sydney or anywhere. Uh, okay, what happened is I actually left Maruya in the end. I, I got sick of trying to scratch for a living, all that kind of stuff, so I came back to Sydney, got a job again. Uh, and worked as a gardener uh, and then worked as a gardener for many, many years until I kind of thought, okay, I wouldn't mind doing clay again. So I went back to TAFE 
and did another year, which meant I got a piece of paper that said I'm actually a potter, you know, and then I did another two years on top of that. I did a, another year just honing stuff, getting, and that's where I really discovered what I mainly do now, which is called Sega firing. And I, um, I did two years and that and, and another follow-up course on surface decoration and, and glaze technology. But I'm, I don't do glaze. I don't bother with glaze much. Yeah, but And then that was it. I was hooked again. And then I just, you know, again, the same thing. Kind of started to make them. And I bought a, luckily I had a, you know, I bought an electric kiln. I could, I swapped that over so I could fire Sega wear inside electric kiln, which you're not supposed to do because it kills the kiln. But I'm handy enough to be able to replace the bits that you chew out. You know, elements, the choose through elements, choose through controllers. But I had a little bit of electrical knowledge, so I could, when those parts failed, I could keep using it until I got gifted another kiln, a big gas kiln, and engineered that so it works. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So what's going on here? Well, what I'm going to do now is I'm getting prepared to make a pot. Now, I, a lot of my pots I make in more than one piece. So you've got you to join them. But the clay, when you buy it, it comes in a bag, generally about 10 kilo, maybe 12 and a half, depends on the manufacturer. Of course, most clays aren't dug up out of the ground anymore. There's a few manufacturers that do that, but most of the clay you'll find is made from bits and pieces around the world. And what they do is they add it all together and it's like making a cake. They put all these various ingredients together and then what happens is they put in a dough mixer, put a bit of water in, mix it all up, take the air out of it, put it in a bag, then you buy it from a potter's supplier and you get clay, and it's beautiful. I mean, but again, there's a hundred different clays you can buy. It all depends whether you're doing raku. So, so what do you porcelain. call that? Is that got a particular yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. What I'm doing here, now this is Well, the, the name meeting. of the clay as well as the technique. Well, it's, it's a, this is um, just a white, this is a white earthenware I'm using at the moment. It's not the one I prefer, but it's near enough what I'm doing. I, uh, and what I'm doing now is, it's called kneading it. You, you kind of, you're trying to make sure that you're starting to get, you, there is no air in it, but this is just what you get taught to do. And I saw you earlier with the, the uh, fishing line, with the, how you're cutting yeah, the, that was, the chunk yeah, off. Yeah, that's just, you know, that's just a cut and wire. That helps you to cut stuff. What I'm doing now is just slapping it into a kind of like an egg shape and then with that egg shape I can throw it on a wheel and make a pot out of it. So I've got the wheel here. Now I've got it engineered so I throw it on what they call bats. Now a bat is just a piece of marine ply in the shape of a circle. 
I've just turned the, the wheel on. Now it's in the shape of a circle. I end up getting these oh, marine, a marine boat builder. These are all the portholes. They cut out a, so, so you get these beautiful bats. Now, what I'm trying to do now is centre the clay, which is what really throws a lot of people. They expect to be able to learn how to centre clay pretty quick, and it's a real hard thing to master. Trying to get that clay running smoothly around and unbalanced, balanced, is pretty hard. So for the people listening, they're not able to see this, but then what you're doing there's more, sorry, sorry there's more doing? going on though. Oh, you there's can heaps feel going on. That you this must is so instinctive. This, well, that's the thing about ceramics, it's all about the feel. And so much of it is instinctive now. I've, it's just instinctive to me to do it, of course, because I've been doing it for 30 years. But what I'm doing is at first I try to make it into a kind of a, just around flat and flat and round big enough so I can manage without you know without it getting unruly and then what you do is you drive your thumb down into the center of the clay and, and start to open it up because you you've got to make the walls thin enough for it to actually be a functionable pot you can't you know you can't make it like a brick you know it's got to be thin you know so so what i'm doing here is a hand on the inside hand on the outside and what you're doing is you're squeezing the clay between your two fingers and that force of you pushing inwards and outwards and you're thinning it out and you're pulling it up at the same time you're forcing the clay upwards so you're thinning it out, you're pushing it in, you're pushing it up. But it's also, there is a technical thing about this too, is that clay has these things called platelets. And what these platelets will do is they'll line up. When you start throwing them on a wheel like this, all the clay particles line up together. And that's what gives us its strength and its ability to be actually throw it up. As a kind of, you know, clay is pretty kind of wondrous stuff. I mean, you know, what it's been, you know, what clay has been used for is just amazing, you know. You build houses out of it, you know. You use it as mosquito repellent, you know. You adorn your body with it, you know. Uh, you use it in sacred rituals, you know. Clay's been around forever and a day, you know. And, you know, it's just, and it's a vital part of soil. Clay is a vital part of soil. You know, all those good red earth you see, you know, where they grow potatoes and get, you know, very good arable land. You know, that good arable land has got a lot of clay in the soil, you know, a lot of iron. That's a red iron kind of, red iron coming out of it, you know. So anyway, yeah, so the other thing is you've got to keep making sure you don't leave water laying around inside it because that will make it crack when it dries out. And all I'm doing now is making a cylinder. I'm just making a straight cylinder. But what I'm going to do is make two cylinders. And then I'll put one cylinder on top of the other, 
tomorrow when it dries and gets a little bit harder. When you just leave it for, that's why I throw on bats, you just leave it for a day. And what happens is then you get, you can make a thing twice as big as what you normally could. Clay has a certain amount of limitations. And those limitations will make, well, define how big you can make a pot. I've, I've decided, I like to make things a little bit bigger. I, you know, I don't like cups and mugs. I make stuff a little bit bigger than that. So most of these I make them out of two parts and join them together. And then with that joining together, you get double the size. And it just, I don't know, it just, I find it easier. See, I, I throw stuff. Other people can throw stuff. And then they can make a mould and then you can make whatever size you like. You know, but you can make a hundred. 200, all the same, you know, the same size, the same shape, all perfect thickness, all that kind of stuff. But that's called slip casting. And, you know, and I don't like making things out of mould. I'm a, you know, I'm a wheel thrower. How come? Oh, I just, you know, it's too rote in a lot of ways. I mean, once you've made the thing, then it becomes just um, like a machine, you know? Because you've taken any, it's just, yeah, there's no skill involved. <laughs> Sorry. And all those people that bloody do slip casting will say I'm an arsehole for that. But I, um, I don't think there's that much skill involved, really. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I kind of, I like the technical challenge of making pots. Well, I think. what's the technical challenge with what you're doing? You said about the balance. Well, that's the, it. See, well, you've got to have everything right. Otherwise, and what I did then is, you know, you know, you know, I've made a pot in maybe five minutes. Yeah, we can't, we, we, yeah. I can see it, but we won't be able to hear yeah. that you've made a pot. Yeah, there's, made, a, see, there's a pot right just, in front of us. Yeah, folks. I've turned a lump of clay into a cylinder that is now probably, I don't know, it's about 150 high. It's about, oh, about 100 in diameter. So what would you do with that then? Is that kind of ready for the next step type thing? Yeah, this is ready for the next step. What I'll do now is I can take this. I can take this off. I can take that one off and then I'll make another one the same size. And then when they get harder tomorrow, I'm just washing the clay off my hands because that's one thing I'm a bit fastidious about it. I hate clay everywhere. And it's not, it's not good for you. It's not good for you. A lot of potters die of silicosis. What's that? Uh, it's a lung disease. Oh. It's a lung disease. Of course, the, there's, a, there's a lot of dust involved in clay. And that's the stuff that'll kill you because, I mean, like, you breathe it in and you're making a clay set of lungs. <laughs> that's the silicosis side of it. Yeah, you can actually make virtually, you will make... You will make a uh, a clay copy of your lungs, but they won't get that until they're dead, and then they're going to have to fire you off. I suppose if they, I don't know how they go with that with the uh, burning people. I suppose. Oh, so you just picked it. You just picked yeah, that, that up. See, that's now that's why I throw on these things. Now that is way too soft to move, right? 
I can take that off. Yeah, the little platform that was on the A little wooden, the wheel. a wooden board, a, a, a wooden, around a circular board. Now I can take that straight off the wheel. I can put it on the shelf, and I can get another one and put that on, and then I can wedge up another thing of clay. This is just smacking it to get into a. This, uh, this is on a plaster of Paris slab. Plaster of Paris tends to, it can take the moisture out if you need to, but it it's just does, never breaks down, you know, and it gives you a good surface to work off. I'll wedge up another piece. Near enough to go. I'll smack it back into shape again. That same kind of teardroppy shop shape. Put that down on the board. First, I'll measure up the other one. This is the other cylinder I made earlier. Just give it a measure. Go, okay, yep, that's near enough. Got a, and now I'll throw another cylinder, the same diameter. So this didn't take long at all, really. Yeah, only 30 years of practice. Yeah, it takes no time at all. Yeah, as I said, five minutes to make a pot, but all this is 30 years of practice. Uh, as I said, like this thing, yeah, people get defeated about trying to centre a piece of clay. And I've got that, I've got water, I'll keep putting my hands in a slip, which is clay and water together. That lubricates it, so as I push on this clay to make sure it's all centred and rolling around without any lumps and bumps and it's not going to fall over. See, you can see that's got a little bit of a, a wobble to it. Now that wobble by the time I try to turn it into a pot will turn into a major wobble and the pot will collapse. It'll just throw it out of whack enough and it'll just collapse. So you've got to hold yourself back in a way or or is that what you how how would you phrase it like what are you actually what's the technique called what you're doing you're feeling the clay you've got to feel the clay you'll feel the clay if it's right or not but a lot as i said this is the hardest hardest bit for people you know you get people coming up and say to you you know in markets and stuff i do markets people come up and say oh look you know i tried pottery but and uh, I could never get anything on the wheel. It just never worked, you know. And it all is is just being bloody determined, you know. See, what I'm doing now is I'm using my other, I've got my left hand, I'm a, I'm a right hand dominant. So I'm using my right hand on top of my left hand. My left hand, my thumb, you find the middle part of the clay. The middle part of that, where that circle of clay was and you push your thumb down into that. Now that means you can get down and that's, and then you start the opening up process. I'm starting to open up with my left hand on the inside, is pushing out. My right hand on the outside is pushing in. And what's that doing is it's thinning out, it's forcing the clay between my fingers and then I slowly go upwards. Now I noticed you used calipers before to measure, yeah. but then 
you're not rushing back to those calipers no, now. No, you, no, you've no, just no. got a feel for it by the look of it. Yeah, yeah, I've got it roughly ideaed in my head. You know, I'll know kind of stuff when it's just about right. It's about the same kind of size. I'll we'll measure it, you know, finally just to make sure it's exact because you've got to get it exact. And then I'll join them tomorrow when this is they're firmed up, this dried out a bit, firmed up a bit, gone through its kind of drying process. Then I'll put one cylinder on top of the other and join them. And then I'll also reinforce that with a little circle of clay, maybe, all depends. And and they will marry together. They'll marry together easily. I, uh, and they don't come if you do it properly they don't come apart <laughs> you can you can if you do it not at the right time and not at all that if you don't consider the what the clay is able to do it can just crack along that seam but generally you know you get it right so that's getting close to where I want to be now that is about the thickness of the clay it's just pulling it up this clay this ball of clay was a bit bigger than the other one I don't tend to measure and weigh too much a lot of potters measure and weigh everything you know and I don't bother too much about weighing stuff I see what it should be doing and I think yeah that's kind of near enough you know, that, that ball looks about the same weight as the other one. But if it doesn't matter if they're not exactly right. I'm just getting, again, I hate clay everywhere. <laughs> I've seen some people, you know, and it, it looks like someone's throwing a bucket of slip over them. You know, when they're, fire, when they're throwing a pot, they just, like, how can you get that much mud over yourself? Uh, you just go, no, you just go easy. See, I'm, I'm wearing black pants. And there's not a spot of clay on me, and I'll throw on a pot. Uh, so you kind of go, oh, you know. Okay, you see that? Now that is about, oh, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 mil too wide than the other one. Now, now, this is almost like the strangler's hold. Yeah, you're, you're gripping it. Yeah, I've got two hands, both hands on either side of the pot on the outside. And all I'm doing is gently pushing it in. And the clay distorts. You can see the clay going to a triangle kind of shape. I can see that, little triangle shape. But then it releases the tension and the clay springs back. As I said, clay is a pretty amazing thing, you know. Still a smidgen big, a little bit more of a strangle. I'm slowing the wheel down. These wheels have got variable speed on them. You can go really fast or really slow. You don't want to go really fast because that makes throwing pots difficult. You don't want to go really slow because it, again, it makes it difficult. You, you work out your own speed. There you go. That means the caliber, the calibers are the same size. That is the bottom of that one. I'll turn that one over and that will be the top of this one. But the top of that one becomes the part that joins onto the top of this one. The more you wash your hands, the more you can get rid of the dust. 
you know what I mean? You can just wash your hand in a bucket with a sponge and that gets rid of the, it minimises the amount of dust and stuff laying around. Because as I said, that's the stuff that's going to kill you one day. You know, mind you, you know, it's kind of, I've spent years building fences, you know, and sawdust will kill you just as bad as silicon will. Uh, but that was the good old days when you were allowed to do whatever you like instead of OH&S shutting you down. <laughs> Took all the fun out of building stuff. Mind you, you know, like I, I used to work in a dockyard. I learnt to be a fitter and turner and welder at Cockatoo Island in Sydney, working on submarines and uh, um, patrol boats. And, you know, you're all dealing with lead paints, asbestos, God knows what else, you know. So, my lungs probably aren't that real good at the moment. <laughs> You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Now these are just pots. These are finished pots. These are sagified. They're very heavily burnished, which means they're incredibly smooth. There's no glaze put on them. That's what you were doing uh, right earlier, with the, you were tapping the head. Yeah, yeah, and just smoothing it all back. Now this one, I smoothed back also. First I'll start, this is... Of course I throw on these wooden bats. You can smooth the surface of the clay because the, ins the clay itself has got to be rough. It's got, got to have silica in it, which is sand. And that makes the inside and the whole surface rather rough. That's why people glaze. But what I do is I burnish it. And I start with a, a wooden, a steel ruler and just do that around the outside. It spins and then this goes around the outside and smooths the clay over. And then that goes, I do that maybe four or five times in a row. And then what I'll do last, uh, what I'll do last is I'll hand polish it with a piece of agate. What's I'll, it, ag agate? Yeah, agate, yeah, it's just agate. And what I do is I just polish that pot, smooth it off by hand. By that time it's released itself off the bat. So you, you can cut it off the bat, but there's no need. The, um, the clay, when it's ready to come off, will actually release itself off the bat, or you can cut it. And then that's when I'll just hand polish it, which is simply, you get the pot in your hand, and you just go like that, and just smooth it until you can feel. Is this is, this is before it's been fired? Yes, absolutely. It's gotta be done before. Now I've burnished these probably five times in the various processes of drying from what they call leather hard to bone dry. A, uh, and then that, what that will do is that will finish the surface off, seals it a bit, makes it very tactile, smooth to the hand, you know, which I kind of... Why do you do that? Like, does everyone well, do that? Because it's, nah, no, some people don't, some people do. But because there's no glaze on it, I'm really keen on, and I like people picking it up. See, if you get a glazed pot, here's one, you get a glazed pot, it's got glass on it. It's glazed. It's, it's just coating of glass. You put powdered glass on it, you fire it to a certain temperature, 
and depending on what the glass is. That's all shiny, yeah, like very a kind shiny. Of and it's, 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 see, you've got the brown clay underneath, black glaze, and you can feel it's just and glass, but you can use that, you know. But whereas the other ones, there's no glaze, but it's a different feel. You can feel the difference. It's more like a, you can feel the clay itself. It's very kind of sensual in a lot of ways. It is. You know, it's incredibly tactile. You know, the glass is glass. Glaze stuff is glaze stuff. But clay in itself, again, you know, is just very, you know, it's tactile. I mean, that's what people have been making pots for bloody millennia, you know, well, thousands of years anyway. You know, and using it for making, you know, cooking stuff in. You know, the first thing, you know, and as you said, you know, like as a kid, you know, they, you know, they just pick up a hunk of mud, shape it into something, and then they found that if you left it on a fire, it hardened the clay. And then you could cook stuff in it and carry water in it and do all that stuff. So, so what's gone from this, these on the shelf that you've just had on the wheel, yeah. they let them dry for a short I'll, tomorrow i will join them together join them together and, and then i will and then i will keep smoothing the surface yes. smooth the surface leave it a day smooth the surface again leave it a day and that's with the the counter agate and the, yeah, ruler. the agate and the, and the steel ruler that will smooth the surface and that's burnishing that's called burnishing and then i've found that because the best clay i ever used no longer available um course one of the vital ingredients is just like it's, it's there is there is you know, a sustainability about it but there's certain things this had a bit of what they call fire clay in it and it used to mean that i could fire the pot from bone dry which is i've got pieces here already that are bone dry and i could fire in a single firing i could sega fire with a single fire but I've found that because there's a lot of clays that can't handle that shock, I've got to bisque them first, which means you fire them. I've got, luckily, I've got uh, two kilns. I've got an electric kiln. I can, I fire the bisque, fire an electric kiln. Only low bisque, I go to about 800, whereas most bisques, you'd go up to about 1,000. And then I'll fire them again in the same. So what, what is that first... Um firing do? All of that hardens it, but not only hardens it, see, okay, that, that's 800 degrees, and now I can, uh, that, that's handable, you know, it's not like these haven't been fired yet, you know, they haven't been fired, you know. They're dry, though. These, are, these have been bisqued, these haven't been. So, and then these I'll fire once, and then I'll put them inside a Sega, which is virtually a vessel inside a vessel. Now, the vessel inside a vessel is, I've got all these other clay containers made in different, as I've made in two different shapes there, I've made Sagas in different shapes, but then two or three pieces. And you can stack those all on top of each other. Now, they've all been fired clay. Then what I'll do is I'll put in that container, I'll put sawdust, seaweed, uh, cobalt oxide, copper uh, carbonate, um, electrical wire, I'll strip 
the insulation off electrical wire. I'll wrap that around a pot. You can use horse hair. Fencing wire? No, no. No, no copper wire, fencing wire just won't. It's too, it still will sit there. You can, you can hit a thousand, you know, you hit 1100 degrees centigrade and the wire will still, fencing wire will still be there, but the copper wire burns out. So what's all the, what's the kind of logic or what, what's the purpose of all this, these extra kind of bits and pieces you're putting in? It's this the colouring. That's where all the colouring and the pat patination comes from. All the patterns, all the colours come from whatever I put in that side, that Sega. Because in that Sega, I put the pot. You know, and you can see where, like here, I've wrapped the copper wire around the pot. And then that gives you that kind of marking on it. Yeah, what, is there a name? What, how do you describe that? Oh, bloody luck. Bloody luck. Alchemy. Oh, there's alchemy. Hang on, there's a bit of alchemy. See, because you've got copper, copper carbonate is green. And in, in a clean flame, which is an electric flame, it will give you green, right? But in a flame that's got smoke in it, it will give you reds and pinks. So that's why you throw the sawdust and that black, all that black down the bottom is sawdust carbon straight do you, and do you have a, like a, a little recipe or do you just see what where the where the kind of I know where I'm going roughly roughly yeah yeah I know where I'm going roughly you know sort of but you oh, you you're not sure you can't say oh yeah just you know knock up two the same you know no that's not going to happen you know no I can you know you can get certain kind of color combinations you know the blue cobalt cobalt uh, oxide will always give you blue you know, you can't get away from it. That's just, you know, that's all that blue and white stuff. You like see this one here, the blue. Yeah, yeah, you know, you can use the blues. I'm, you know, I'm a bit over the blue at the moment. You know, I don't, I'm not using blue as much anymore. You know, I'm, I'm sticking more with um, red iron oxide. Red iron oxide is this kind of, I'll just move a few pots around here. This one here, that's red iron oxide. Totally different look. That's Kieran Gina Reinhardt, I suppose. So what do you, how do you achieve that? It comes in a powder form. It comes in a powder form. And oh. you can be a bit lucky about how you go about things. You know, I, I, get, um, I get twine string and you can tie that around your pot and then you can sprinkle the, co the red iron oxide on the pot and it'll kind of get held up by that string. And then when you fire it off, it it will and, and it can and it gives you it's like you know it's got like that showered effect where it looks like it's raining down on it and that's the thing it's held up that little bit of red iron oxide until it started to all come get to temperature, which is when it generally goes off you know like Fahrenheit four five one that's burning point of paper that's when things start to happen around about that mark you know. Uh, that's when things you can, you know, the sawdust is igniting, everything's starting to burn. And did you just like is this sort of um, through trial and error, or did you have a very considered approach that's planned out? Both, <laughs> both a very considered trial and error. Yeah, yeah. No, well, you do trial and error. How do you know what's when, when you're, you're successful? How do you know? How do you know if it's successful? 
whether it sells or not. <laughs> oh no, look. Yeah, that look. Some are duds. Yeah, how do you know if it's a dud? You open the kiln. <laughs> yeah, open up the kiln and you go, oh shit, that's a dud. Well, you know, and you also get losses. They, they, you know, no matter what you do, you can get cracks appear. And then you just got to drive a hammer through them. You know, some of the best pots I've had has got, you know, got cracks in them. You know, so you just got to drive a hammer through them. You can't not release it to the public. You know, I think that's part of the thing. You know, some people sell seconds. I'm not, I don't like that. Selling seconds is just kind of, it cheats other people. Someone's paying for a first and they've paid a good dollar for it and then you release a second for half the price. I think you're low on the tone on what you've done. Do you know, I think that's just personal. You know, anyway. Yeah, so, and how do you know it's a dud? In your heart. In your head. Uh, years of practice. And you know it's an ascetic. It's your ascetic. It's your eyes. You know, you look at it and go, hmm, that's all right. Oh, that's a bit dud, you know, but I've done other stuff like, you know, that one there, which is... This one here, that's got a lot of... Like a bluey colour. Oh, no, that's, that's an egg. It's uh, an egg. Is that hollow or is it... Yeah, they've all got to be hollow. Got to be hollow. You throw them in two halves again. And that's all that blue. That's, again, that cobalt. But all this, the... that's all this is seaweed. Seaweed. Seaweed's an amazing thing. I go down to the beach and collect seaweed and I put that in the firing, but the pot has actually got to be in contact with it. But this one, is, I've really fired the poop out of that. That's gone to about 1,200 degrees centigrade. And that's why, if, you know, if you drop that on your foot, you'd break your foot. It's also got a fire and crack, but I don't give a bugger on that. Because, you know, what you're going to do, Put a, you can't put a flower in that because it's got no hole in it. Well, it's got a hole in the bottom. Of course, that's when you join the two halves together and start to firm up and start to smooth it off when you get to a certain point uh, what they call leather hard you've got to put a hole in it otherwise it will blow up and when you put a hole in there all that trapped air inside comes out as an exhalation and just it's like the clay's just breathed out for you yeah but that you know see that to me that's that's beautiful but, but you know, again, it's that ascetic. Some people just can't get their head around it. Some people can. Do you? Do people like the randomness of it? Oh yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. You know, because it doesn't look, it doesn't look the same. It doesn't look the same as everyone else does. You know, uh, or unique, unique. Well, yeah, because they are all one-off pieces. And that's the thing, and I can say that to people. These are one-off pieces. There is only one of these in the world. And why Why is that? Because of the patterning, the shape. You can't manufacture it. You couldn't get a machine to make it. You couldn't get a printer to actually print all those. You know, it's just it's so random. And they are just one-offs. You know, each shape is different, slightly different. You know, I can make shapes similar. You know, but then the colouring and the patterning will be different. Ah, oh, yeah. But I still what I said to you before. You know about that. You know, um, last time we met was you know why do you make it? Um, because you know. There is that story about a person going to a learning, going to a teacher 
a potter to learn, you know, and they said they wanted to be a potter, and they've gone, well, the reply was, why do you want to be poor and dirty? You know, because that's what you're going to be. You know, there's very few rich potters out there, very, very few, uh, and you will be working in mud for the rest of your life. Um, but that shouldn't hold you back. What's what? What do you? Uh, what drives you with with it? What do you get out oh, of it? Oh God! Um, making something beautiful. Not a bad thing. In this episode, I chatted with Greg Cregan, a ceramic potter. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including information about Sagar firing. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.